Good morning, everybody. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. We're really glad to see you here this morning. Um, we're about to get started with some worship. So if you're able and would like to, you're invited to stand.
Well, good morning, everybody, once again. Just wanted to let you guys know, as you arrived, you received, you should have received a packet of information in a plastic baggie with the connection card, which looks like this. Um, so there should be an envelope and also a pen. Um, and if you're joining us for the first time today, um, please fill, uh, fill out the connection card if you have a moment and uh, let us know um, how we can help you get connected and we also would love to pray for you. Um, and once you get those filled out, you can drop off the cards and your tithes and offerings in the envelope. And uh, there are boxes within the sanctuary along the wall. Um, and also another note, it's communion Sunday. Um, and on your way in, we also have the little communion packets with the juice and the bread, which look like this. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, thank and you. now we'll welcome uh, Pastor Steve Murray. Oh, gosh, thank you. Well, uh, we're asking this question, how does God's story shape yours? That's uh, the series that we're in. Uh, we do series because we want some continuity. Uh, we want to uh, build a narrative, uh, not invent a narrative, but we want to build a narrative. So we're constantly doing series to, to um, put together a coherent, uh, congruent look at some aspect of what Scripture has to say about life. And so we're asking this question in this series this, uh, this winter, starting this new year. How does God's story shape yours? And in some ways, uh, this is the easiest group to ask that question of, because you've already accepted that God's story is essential for shaping yours. I wish we could talk to everybody who's not here. Uh, I, I wish we could talk to the parents of the little kid version of me, uh, who out of a Catholic background and a Protestant background, uh, used those differences to have so much conflict about it that they never ever really got to the story uh, that God wanted them to know and wanted uh, to tell us kids. So think about the people you know in your uh, circle of influence, in your uh, network of influence, your sphere of influence, who don't really know the story. Perhaps they've rejected the story, but they don't really know the story. If you said, hey, what do you think about God's story and how is it shaping your life? They'd look at you like, what? What are you talking about? What's God's story? Well, you know, the Bible and what he's done through Israel and what he's done through Jesus. And oh, no, no, I, you know, that's, I don't believe that kind of stuff. Because, and I've had people say this to me as they come to church to worship, with, or not to worship, but they've come to participate with a friend. And the friend will introduce me, a family member, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. And they'll say, hey, this is, you know, Biff and, you know. And I'll say, hey, Biff, how you doing? And Biff will say, I just want you to know I'm an engineer. I'm like, oh, that's kind of what? Apropos to what? You know, it's a non sequitur. Well, you know, it's like this whole thing you guys do. I, I'm an engineer. And as if that's going to explain something. And I'll say, well, would you like to meet some other engineers? I mean, you get the secret handshake, engineer handshake, and you guys can talk engineering and on the way in to worship God. Well, no, no, no. What I mean is I, I'm an engineer, uh, and you fill in a lot of other professions. I'm a thinking person, and I'm just here to placate uh, this person. And so um, my favorite version of that is when the person comes in and they'll say, hey, you know, I just want you to know I'm an atheist. 
<clears throat> that's the better one, because now they're at least on a theological wavelength with me, and, and, and I'll say, well, okay, fantastic, you're in the right place. Uh, this is a perfect place for atheists. And they might look at, kind of shocked, and they think, this guy's kind of a wise guy, you know. Uh, but then I'll often ask them, uh, are you an honest atheist or a dishonest atheist? And they're a little offended. I go, what do you mean honest or dishonest? And, well, are you an open-minded atheist? Are you open to the idea that maybe there's a God who wants you to know him? Well, it depends. <laughs> it depends on what? How, well, how it might affect my life. Right. So we're back to our question. How does God's story shape yours? We're asking this profound question, very simple question, but it's profound because we're asking people to let their guard down long enough to, to be open to what God might want to say to them. And the funny thing about that, when the person who says, well, I'm a this or I'm a that, as is if to say, because I'm a thinking person, this really doesn't apply to me. This is a congregation filled with thinking people. That's what I love about it. And so when people come in and they have that, that, that defensiveness, that guardedness, and they use those kinds of you know, statements to protect themselves. I want to say, you know, that's the whole point of being here. This is a, a place for thinking people, for people who want to feel deeply and think deeply about the most important things in life. And so we're asking a lot of questions. We don't present ourselves as people who know it all. We simply are people who are responding to the one who does know it all. And so this is why we keep asking the question, how does God's story shape yours? And of course, our, our foundational text for that is the Bible, what we would call the Word of God, the revealed Word of God, the Word of God that isn't generated by human beings you know, postulating, projecting what God could be like, but the God who has revealed himself to us uh, in history, uh, out of geography, out of, out of the human condition, and it, it, it moves smoothly from generation to generation, because we believe that God works in culture, but God is always above culture. He's not captured by culture, by, by culture, but rather he wants to transform it. Are you with me so far? This, this is the important question and the important uh, assumptions that I bring to worship everywhere, that I bring to this walk with Jesus. It's personal to me, but brings me into a community of people who are asking those kinds of questions. And so we have been talking about uh, the, this foundational text, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, we're going to be talking today about Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. Just nail it. We're going to go right down deep. It's a word-for-word -word study in these four books, <clears throat> and, uh, and we'll also have time for lots of questions. So obviously we're not going to go very deep into the details of this because part of my assumption, and I'm clinging to it, is that you are reading through the Bible this year. And if you haven't so far, it's not too late to jump in and start reading. You, there's, we gave you a bookmark. If you didn't get that, grab one on, on the uh, table as you walk out. And it'll give you resources that you can go online and connect to Bible reading plans, Bible resources, things you can watch that'll help you understand the Bible. Uh, we've left no stone unturned to help you read the Bible effectively. So the only excuse is you. Just commit to reading it. And because what you're going to get from, uh, from me is we're asking this question, how does God's story shape yours? is some, some um, <clears throat> shout-outs about what we're seeing as we move through the Bible. Following this worship service, we take a break, and then we want you to come back for a conversation, 45-minute conversation, looking at, at some of the infrastructure, the underpinnings that would help you understand the Bible better. So it's, it's in a sense, very technical, but it's presented in a very artistic, compelling way. We show short videos, five-minute videos, allow us to then interact with all these 
technical things. What is story? What is plot? What is character? What's the design of the Bible? What do you do with metaphor? How do you understand the law, poetry, etc.? Why do we go to this much effort? Because we think it's that important. And if you don't know the Bible, you don't know enough about how the world really works. If you know the four forces, you know, gravity, electromagnetism, the strong force, the weak force, but you don't know the one that holds it all together, you don't know yet what you need to know. You know a lot, you just don't know what's most important to help you make sense of all the other stuff you know. So these books that we're looking at today, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, follow Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And they set us up to, to connect to some other books. But th- these books, and the reason I, I grouped them together like this, is that they're all connected. Uh, these books are, uh, basically document a transition from the people called Israel. This is the name of one of the patriarchs, the fathers of the tribe, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, Jacob's name was changed from Jacob, which means ripoff, deceiver, to Israel. Um, and of course, we know that Israel means just from reading the newspaper. It's constant conflict. That's not what it's supposed to mean. It really means prince. And so he was supposed to be part of this, this ongoing progressive revelation of what God was going to do to create a nation, to bless all nations. And so they're wandering around <clears throat> because they've gone through this experience of uh, being introduced to the living God. These patriarchs have, have, have launched that process. They were in captivity in Egypt, uh, for a very long time. They've been released from that captivity, and now they've come to a place uh, where they're reviewing what, what God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to these people who are their uh, heirs. So they document a transition from wandering around to settling into this land that they were promised. So that's the big idea. If you think of, okay, how would I summarize these books? Uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. It's the people who have been wandering and now landing where they were supposed to be. And uh, that's fantastic. Except that uh, we live in a world that resists any idea. We resist it with with really kind words, or we resist it with really harsh words, but we resist the idea that God is in control and in charge of anything, especially us. If there is a God, if there is some spiritual force, we get to tell that force what we need and what we want. And so how does that come down into practical terms? The the historicity of these books has been challenged as an invented national narrative myth, a myth of origin. It's as if you concocted some wild tale about your origin. By the way, when we're on that subject, I didn't tell you that I am... In, I'm next in line in the throne for, for Great Britain. I've been undercover. I don't like all the attention. Uh, and if I started telling you that, you'd do what you just did. You'd be laughing. Oh, that's interesting. But uh, every once in a while, somebody will pop up and say, well, you know what? Um, uh, after the Russian Revolution, my family got to... What, your family? Yeah, my family got dispersed. I'm one of the, the lost princes, and I'm ready to jump right back in. I've already picked out real estate in St. Petersburg, and I'm, I'm ready to go back. Um, it's that silly. And so what happens is, in our culture, in our time, um, the historicity of these books is then relegated to being a national myth, an invented thing. And if you talk to a person who would say, identify with being an Israeli, I, I identify 
with being a Jew, but this notion that God gave my people land, no, I earned this land. I won this land with hard work and hard battle. And this idea that I need a, a sacrifice or a savior, mm-mm. I get to pretty much make my own way, and I'm a really good person. And so this has insinuated itself into the academy. So if you go to UCSD, you're not going to hear anybody say, wow, how does, God shape, how does God's story shape yours? We've relegated that to church, where it's non-knowledge. It's ahistorical. It's not verifiable. It doesn't, doesn't bear the scrutiny, the scrutiny of all the research protocols and requirements that we impose on uh, the accumulation of knowledge. And it's a convenient fiction to say that you just can't know it. It's the histority has been challenged and rendered not there. It's a made-up thing. Why? Well, I think it's because it doesn't fit a secular worldview regarding what we give God permission to do in intervening in the world that he created. What puts a lie to that are, are the people like you who come out of all these edu- all of us who come out of these educational institutions who have all the credentials and the degrees they say no we've submitted ourselves to the process and we still have concluded that this is what it is that it's rooted in geography it, it emerges out of history it's a unified literary whole and we believe it's the word of god so this is the 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 conflict you immediately fall into or volunteer for when you start asking this question how does god's story shape yours. So I believe in in the historicity of these books as part of God's grand design to redeem creation. So if I was talking to a religious studies person who would be dismissing me at any secular college, they go, well, Steve, I don't know if you really know the process. I say, well, I understand the process completely. And I conclude that that the historicity of these things stands up under scrutiny. What I would concede to them, though, is this, that the historicity of these events is not sufficient evidence for my interpretation. And that is that this is part of God's grand design to redeem creation. Isn't that kind of an outrageous thing for a pastor to say? Not really. Because I think the historicity of these events is necessary evidence for its interpretation, but it's not sufficient. My point being this, Jesus Christ walked the earth, was in a very public ministry for three years, was crucified, dead, and buried, rose again from the dead, gave his followers the Holy Spirit, and were, and were off and running. That's historically credible, but the interpretation is, therefore, he's God, he's Savior, he's Lord. Do you follow what I'm, where I'm going with this? That historicity is... Is, is not sufficient for me to make the interpretation that Jesus is my Lord. But it's necessary. That, that's, that's necessary evidence for me to say, and so I've come to faith. The point I'm making is that we, 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 we can't prove God, but we put our trust in God. Just like you can't prove that a person will be faithful to you, but you have to trust that they will. And this is super important. We're not being anti-intellectual, non-historical, when we say it's a matter of trust and faith. Because when, what the academy wants to do, and I'm not anti, obviously not edu- educational institution, um, I'm very much for that. I'm simply saying that we can't pretend that we've got it so nailed down that it's a done deal. What we have to say is it's so clear if you're willing to be open to it. 
And so I'm asking you the question, are you an honest academician or a dishonest academician? Are you an honest atheist or dishonest agnostic? Or what are you? Are you willing to be open and trust? This is, again, part of the summary of these four books. These people had so much historical contact with the living God, and at the end of the day, it wasn't sufficient for their obedience. You follow what I'm saying now? We're talking about Israel again. That these four books, you read them and you think, oh, gosh, what are they? What? But what are, they just saw, they just did, they just experienced, and still. So that's where we're going with this. Um, so I believe in the historicity of this. I believe that they are sufficient and necessary evidence for the interpretation that God is at work in this world redeeming it. And these narratives assume that these events happened and that these events are not flattering. So when you read these four books, you go, it's embarrassing being Israel. And so to me, one of the greatest arguments for their veracity, their authenticity, is that would you write that? Uh, would you write the New Testament so you go, they did what? They betrayed him? The guys who knew him best liked him the least at, at the moment that counted most? Yeah, that's what happened. Everything is in the Bible. Why? Because it's not afraid to say this is who people are. And this is how God interacts with people. That's why it's scandalous. You should not let small children read the Old Testament. I'm being facetious when I say that. Because when we lead children into an experience of the Old Testament, we're not saying, oh, then when he, he impaled him on that spear, let's stop and think about that for a second. If you have kids crying and cowering in the corners going, oh, I, you know, no more Bible. But that's the reality, the starkness of what we see in the Word of God. These events are not flattering, but we, we, we assume they happen, and they've documented them so we, so we could see how people have interacted with God. And in that process, of course, what we do is we see ourselves. So in these books, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, are a bridge from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus is, is part of that bridge, too. We talked about that last week. Of saying, okay, you've come out of slavery, and now you need to become a people united around God himself and the ways that God wants you to relate to him. And so they're a bridge. They follow Genesis and Exodus. They link us to Samuel, Kings, Prophets, and Exile. What we're going to see here is there's this arc of continuity. So if you think about the Bible, the problem, as I said when we first started the series, is the books of the Bible don't help. The way they're, they're put in there, we don't really get to see all these prophets stuck at the end of the Old Testament. They're embedded in the, in the whole story, but they come at the end, and what's going on here? What's going on is that Abram is led from the Persian Gulf, from Ur, goes up through uh, what would be Iraq and, and Syria, comes down into Israel. All this history happens, and because of the rebellion, we see this um, in Kings, the people are taken back into captivity. Where? Back to where they started, to Babylonia. So what we see is this entire literary unit is from here to here to here and back again. And so that's what we're getting in this Old Testament um, um, content is a picture of what God has promised to do, the relationship he's established, the covenant he's, he's established with people. And because of our hard-heartedness, uh, we are a stiff-necked people, as the Bible says. Though God led him out and around, we're willing to, for God to lead us back because of our, our disobedience. So this is where we are now in the narrative. <clears throat> in 400 days at Mount Sinai, 
the book of Leviticus prepares Israel, shows us how God prepares Israel to be a people of the law. All these laws, all these offerings, all these festivals are all very vivid illustrations of the holiness of God, the wholeness of God, the integrity of God, the magnificence of God, the otherness of God, the fact that God is not just a projection of human beings. It's not some anthropomorphic projection that we're we're looking at here. We're looking at God himself saying, okay, this is what it looks like to be in relationship with me. So they're being shaped as people of the law. In Numbers, Moses organizes Israel into tribes that they've already been designated as tribes by virtue of their history, their personal history. They're from the tribe of Levi, the tribe of, uh, of Simeon, whatever. But now Moses organizes them into tribes and prepares them to enter the land. So what we see in Numbers is him saying, okay, this is how we're going to be organized and ready to move into the land. And already then, in that process, we see more and more conflict. People saying, gosh, it was way better in Egypt. Why are we doing this? And you see the inherent conflict between the people uh, and Moses, between Moses and his brother and his sister. Uh, It's just, you know, Aaron and Miriam are, are taking the task by God saying, what are you doing? And of course, every, every, every story that we see underlines the fact that we are desperately lost without God. We do not accept that in our culture. We find that so offensive for somebody to say, to say you are desperately lost without God. We see it as such a great offense to be told that. Because we are awesome, don't you know? Now, God is awesome. And without Him, we are awful but full of awe for ourselves. And so here in Numbers, as they're moving out, marching into the new land to take it, uh, they've spent 400, 400 years in servitude, you know, 400 days out at Mount Sinai, just over a year. And now they're 40 miles away from the land promised to them. And when we get there, Moses sends out scouts they call them spies, but they're really scouts. But these men sent to scout the land are afraid to trust God, and they cause the people to rebel. That's what we see in Numbers. No, these, these people are big and mean, and there's lots of them. You know the story. And these ten fearful people, having seen what they've seen, having experienced what they've experienced, say, it's just not worth it. I I think God can't really get us there, though he has promised. And so God says, fine. If you prefer the desert, enjoy it for the next 40 years. So God gives them 40 years to think about it and to die, to literally, that generation needs to die. 20, 20, 20 years old and above will no longer be available when the next opportunity comes to go into the land. So that's where Numbers leads us. It's horrific reading in that regard. And so at the end of the 40-year timeout, we're now in Deuteronomy. We're over 40 days. Deuteronomy is basically a second restatement of the law. The law was given in Exodus, and now it's given again. And Moses starts out the book of Deuteronomy with a, you know, a lecture. Now you people aren't really worth trusting. What? Uh, this would not work in the NFL when you're down 28 points and you're close to you know, the end of the game. The coach would not say, you know, you guys are pretty miserable. 
Not really dependable. Can't really get you to do anything properly. So here we go. On to victory. And this is Moses' speech. He, he gives them the law again. There's all kinds of conversation about what they're going to need to make it work in the new land. And at the very end, he says again, now I know you're going to fail. But then he ends in the final word of, okay, but let's trust the Lord and go. And there's a, there's a change of leadership from Moses to Joshua. And of course, Joshua, uh, is a, his name is slightly longer than the name Jesus. But both of them mean uh, that Yahweh, the holy name of God, uh, is salvation. So here comes Joshua. Now Joshua's life uh, is a story of trial and triumph because uh, he was born in Egypt under the harsh conditions of slavery. He was a young man when chosen to be one of the scouts. Uh, Only he and Caleb, coming back, recommended that they trust God. The, The other ten said, we can't do this, even though God is with us. These two said, these youngest guys said, we can do this because God is with us. There's an old story about um, merchants going to Africa. And, and these, these two guys were representatives of, of huge European uh, and American shoe companies. And one of them writes back to the headquarters and says, don't bother, nobody wears shoes here. The other guy wrote back and said, send as many shoes as you can, nobody wears shoes here. The 10 said, God is nowhere when it comes to these people in this place. The two said, God is now here. Same letters, organized differently. God is nowhere, or God is now here. And that's what Joshua was about. Ultimately, he leads the people uh, uh, across the Jordan River into uh, the land. Um, he, he takes over the the, the, the city of Jericho with nothing but a soloist and a horn section. Um, this, this prostitute, a Canaanite prostitute, Rahab, in the city uh, has come to have some kind of trust in the living God. And so she becomes their, their contact in that uh, oldest city on the earth, apparently. Uh, a pretty serious fortress. And uh, they enter the land and, and, and as you read, if you are reading through it or if, you, if you're going to be reading through this, you'll see you know, they did the right thing there. They just marched around and God gave them the city. Next time they have some complications and on their own terms they get defeated. So this is the pattern. Now Joshua then leads us into the time of judges and sets a high bar that nobody, nobody else could reach. Because Joshua, unlike Moses, was not a prophet. He was a judge. He was a, a military leader. He was a wise person. And if you remember, Moses' father-in-law, uh, uh, Jethro had said, hey Moses, uh, you got to organize yourself differently uh, and uh, assign people to be judges. Well, these judges were uh, administrators, they were leaders, they were tribal chiefs. Uh, they had a significant role to play in supporting the people because they were servant leaders. Now Joshua was that. As we go into the book of Judges, uh, there's Joshua the judge, and they have this beautiful uh, transition uh, going into the land and then settling into it. And this is what Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That was Joshua. He was the Joshua of, don't be afraid. Be not afraid. Trust the Lord. If Joshua were here this morning, I believe that's what he would tell us. I think he would say, trust God and do the right thing. 
trust God and do the right thing. Yeah, but what if I can't answer that? Just trust God and do the right thing. Yeah, but in case this, I don't know. I can't, I can't anticipate every contingency, every what if. We've, we've, we're as prepared as we can be because we've been waiting on the Lord and learning from the Lord, and now we're going to trust Him and follow Him into the land. And we believe He will, uh, Joshua, I can imagine him saying, I believe He will make us resilient and resourceful because He is with us. As He provided for us, getting us out of slavery, as He provided for us in the wilderness, as He's brought us to this place, let's just continue trusting Him. We don't, know, we don't need to make it conditional. We don't need to hedge our bets. We just need to simply honor and glorify Him, and people will be blessed. So we see that God is calling out to and raising up people who will trust Him in all things. That's the whole point. Will you trust me in all things? Trusting God more than anything else will keep you out of trouble. Trusting God more than anything else will get you through trouble. Trusting God more than anything else is worth the trouble. And you might say, well, I'm in the middle of all kinds of trouble that are not of my own making. Well, right. But there's a whole lot more trouble that God kept you from because you've been faithful to Him. Not as a reward, because just walking with Him is its own reward. And now that you're in some trouble, He's going to let you and help you get through it. And you're going to learn and grow in the process. And not only will you be blessed, but others will be blessed. This is always the model when you go through trouble in the Lord. Trials, temptations, tribulations, turmoil. He does a work in you in order to do a work through you. And then when you're through with it, and in between the next trouble, you find out that, you know what? Looking back, that was worth the trouble. That was worth going through that. It's like Joseph. In Je- we left Joseph, uh, one of the sons of Jacob, at the end of Genesis, in Genesis 50. And he's, he's, he's confronting the brothers who, th- who sold him into slavery. He says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. That's what we see when we walk with the Lord. Yet, yet though I might die, I, yet I will live. And if I live, I will live in Him. So where's the downside to that? I don't understand it. Mark, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, always had this funny um, this comment. He, he would, I think he positioned himself as an agnostic, a, a social critic and a critic of all things that were uh, attached to institutions, including the church. But when he wanted to say that somebody had a perfect situation, he said, you know, that's like being a Christian with four aces. You're in the card game with a perfect hand, and you've got assurance of salvation. What else would you want, right? That doesn't mean that we don't face troubles, we don't create troubles, we don't succumb to troubles. It just means that it's all worth the trouble. So Joshua, think about this, Joshua wandered 40 years in the desert because 10 guys wouldn't trust God. Is there anything more frustrating than that? Now Moses didn't get to go to the promised land. Why? Here's this epic leader. Who compares to Moses in the Old Testament? But unlike Joshua, Moses got to a point when he just was so frustrated that he stopped trusting God. And he was trusting his own anger, his own frustration, his own sense of rightness and his own sense of privilege to say, you're supposed to do what I tell you what to do. Because early on when they ran out of water, God said, uh, tap the stone and I will provide water. He did. Tap the stone, water. Another time later, uh, this is you know, in that numbers period, 
They're out, they're out in the desert, no water, and, and they're complaining, and God says, speak to the stone, and I'll provide water. And Moses is so frustrated with the people, he pounds it twice with his staff. Yes, the water comes forward, but God says, why? Why, why, did, you, why did you do that? He says, you know, you won't be going into the promised land. Moses was so frustrated that these darn people have kept me from what God has promised our people. Yeah, that's true. You are going to go through a lot of pain and suffering because of other people. That's not a hall pass for you not to trust God and be faithful to Him. Let that sink in. You might be surrounded by people who are faithless in their faith. It doesn't give any of us permission to say, well then, forget it. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to over the course of the last 40 years who have walked away from the church and have you know, washed their hands of it, shaken the dust off their feet, saying, who needs the church? Uh, I was talking to a young man this, this, this week who is, has this incredible vision how to create real estate deals that would allow buildings to be turned into churches as uh, church incubators. Because all these starting churches lack, lack any, any place to meet that's it's reliable. And so he went to some guys who he holds in high regard and who are very godly people who are involved in all kinds of ministry things. And, and uh, he said, hey, here's my idea. Uh, would, would you be willing to talk about funding it with me? This guy's bringing his own resources and he's asking these two wise guys that he really much has such high regard for. They're like father figures to him. And he said, no, no. And both of them said that. And he said, well, well, why? He said, it's the church. The church doesn't deserve that. The church is a pain in the rear. The church is just, you know, it's a mess. We have our personal ministries. We love doing ministry. We're using our gifts to serve God, but the church, no. This guy was crushed. When I talked to him this week, he was crushed. He's like, where does that come from? I said, it comes from the same place that so many leaders um, uh, don't go, Christian leaders do not, are not part of a congregation. They don't identify with a community of faith because it's so frustrated. Joshua is a beautiful picture of somebody who went through everything Moses went through. But at the end of the day, he said, hey, you know, that's them. Me, it's for me and my house. Their sin is not my excuse to sin. This is, this is again, a personal application of these four books. These books are a mirror of our lives. They show real people in real life situations. Which people would you have been? The ones who trusted or busted, right? Would you have been the two saying, no, let's go, it's scary. Yes, of course, they're big. But what's our alternative? Not to trust God? Our fear isn't a good enough excuse not to trust God. If anything, our fear is a better reason to trust God. Which ones would you have been? The people clamoring to go back to Egypt where it was comfy? Or the people moving ahead in obedience to God? All of us like to think that we're Joshua and Caleb, if we're honest about it. Well, yeah, I just read that story, and I've got to say the three of us would have done it differently. The three, yeah, me, Joshua, and Caleb. Oh, thank you for clarifying that. If Joshua's story is one of triumph, the book of Judges is one of turmoil. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the summary of the whole book. 
You read it at the very end, the summary, literally the summary of the book, the very end of the book in Judges is, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And of course, that was a familiar refrain because the whole time you've been reading it, everybody's been doing what was right in their own eyes. It started uh, way back in, hey, Genesis. And it continued through Exodus. And it gained momentum in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua. So in Judges, why are we surprised that everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes? And they had this spin cycle, this cycle of despair, uh, sin, catastrophe, repentance, repeat, sin, catastrophe, you know, intervention, uh, re- their repentance, repeat. It's this, and it's every, every time it happens, the, the, best, the, oh, the best is the beginning of Judges, Joshua. And then, okay, the other ones are pretty good, but by the time you get to the end, they're just horrible. And so the spin cycle is happening more frequently, and there's greater despair. And there's more disarray at the end of it. Sin begets sin. Okay, but they had the law of God. Yes. So let me summarize this. The law informs us, but it's love that transforms us. The law simply shows who we are. The law of God says this is who you are. This is how far away from me you are. The love of God says, this is what you need. And, and it's an artificial thing to say law or love. No, they're supposed to go together. Uh, this notion of loving is not New Testament. It's from the beginning. In John's opening, he says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. So what we see in these books is finally fulfilled by God himself coming to save us. So what I want to do as we move into Holy Communion is to simply sit in the presence of God and and soak in his word. And I'm going to read just a few passages uh, that give you the context of what these books are about. With all the stories and all the examples and all the illustrations, I hope you read them and read them carefully. Uh, because you'll see yourself in every story and every chapter of this thing. But let me just read this to you and soak our hearts in God's Word as we prepare to celebrate Holy Communion. I'll start with Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath you, or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Commandment three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Commandment four, Observe the Sabbath Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 
Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Commandment five, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Commandment six, you shall not murder. Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment eight, you shall not steal. Commandment nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And ten, Commandment ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your father. And then the passage ends by saying, these are the commandments the Lord gave you. Now the, the word commandment is just simply the word word. These are the ten words. We call them the ten commandments because they're given as commands. But they're ten words. Uh, dabar is the word for word. So these are the ten dabarim, the multiple, right? The, the, the plural, ten dabarim. The people of Israel were called the people of the word. It was the word of God that called creation into being. So this is the power of God's word at work in people who respond to him in faith. The history and the geography, the actual events and the times uh, described in those events are absolutely credible, but that's not enough. We need to respond personally to the Word of God. The law can't get us there. The young man approaches Jesus and says, hey, I've kept all the commandments, what else do I need to do? What's a laughable moment? Really? (laughs) I don't know what tone of voice Jesus used. No kidding. Wow. I'll step aside. You must be the savior of the world. But he says this, there's one thing you lack. Why? Because there's always one thing we lack. In this man's case, it was sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. Why? That I want to defraud you of your wealth? No, I want to give you wealth that was lasting. This was a trade up for the guy. He didn't know it. He thought it was a trade out, a trade down. He was saying, trade up. All the stuff you have, it's going to hold you back, man. Hey, what about that guy? What about that guy? I'm not talking about that guy. That guy, there's another issue for him. But for you, it's this. This is not a universal law. It's for this man, it was the way the law was being applied. So Joshua says, 24:15, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. If God's not it, all right. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, back there in Ur, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That's not a proud declaration of awesomeness. That's a confession of faith. But for the Lord, what? Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. 613 commandments. How do, you, how do you bring them all together? How do you summarize them? Matthew 22.35-40. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now these weren't the first and second commandments. We've already read those. But he's saying these are the most important things. First and second is these are the most important things you can do. That strong vertical and that strong horizontal. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And where does this go? Well, on the night that he was betrayed, that's where it went. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus, uh, having blessed some bread, celebrating Passover, took it and said, uh, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took it, he blessed it. This is my body given for you. All of a sudden, the vividry, the vivid imagery of Passover comes to them. People in exile, in slavery, are given these instructions by the Lord how the blood of the Lamb will protect them from the curse of death. And this is the main celebration in Israel's life. And he says, This is my body. This that we celebrate at Passover is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup, and having blessed it, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup that would sit in the Passover meal that was never touched. To this day, it's never touched. And if you ask um, a person celebrating Passover, why is this cup untouched? They'll give you all kinds of answers. But the reason it was untouched, it was a cup that only the Savior could bless and hold. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, you have a communion kit. Uh, you see the top has wine. Uh, the bottom has a little tiny mini loaf of bread. I strongly suggest you take the bread out first. And then when you're ready, receive the bread and the cup. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your love is not only sufficient, and it's also necessary. Uh, that your life lived long ago is sufficient and necessary. The life you live now in us through your Holy Spirit is sufficient and necessary for our salvation. Lord, we thank you that you allow all people to come before you by faith and receive this gift of salvation, the gift of your abiding presence. We pray, Lord, that whatever is in our way, whatever unconfessed sin, whatever hardness of heart, uh, we would lay that at your feet as we come into your presence uh, by your grace, guided by your truth, to be filled with your love. Uh, we do this in the full assurance that you receive all who come to you by faith. And that, Lord, you welcome us as beloved sons and daughters. We pray all this in your high and holy name. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So let's continue worshiping the Lord as you receive Holy Communion.
leaves into gardens. You turn bones into armies. You turn seas into highways. You're the only one who In Christ, you are part of a movement of God's Holy Spirit, redeeming this world, loving this world one day at a time, speaking the word of God in every possible situation. You are those people. You are the people that God is calling together. You're a grave that has become a garden. Though dead, we are now alive in him. This is his gift to us and his gift to the world through us. Take that high calling that God has placed on you seriously as you figure out what he's put in your hand to not only bless you, but to bless other people. With, with everything else you do, see that this is your primary core identity. Therefore, do everything you do in his name and for his glory to bless everybody you can. If we can bless you today in any way, if we can pray for you, go right out around the corner to that lovely prayer garden, and uh, we'd like to pray for you. If you have any needs or concerns for yourself or anybody else, you don't even have to articulate them. Just say, pray for me, or here's what I want prayer for. And if you'd like to be part of that ministry out there to pray with people, let us know. Uh, we'd like to have you be part of that as well. We believe in the power of prayer, because the power of prayer is just another way of expressing God's Word. The high and holy Word of God changes everything and everyone through His Holy Spirit at work in us. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life in Him and with Him and for Him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.